Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. You are here because of the claim, the claim being better sense making. Welcome to 2022, ladies and gentlemen, variations thereupon who may be listening. I hope everybody had a lovely, lovely holiday break. I certainly did. Had a bit of a, you know, it's funny because you, you do all the prep and then you go live and then a, you press a button and the button doesn't work properly. So we were trying to get all the syncs between recording directly onto the Zoom and also doing this live stream in business. So we should be live right now on YouTube and Twitter. No Twitter spaces this time. I'm just going to kind of just going to kind of go off the dome. Anybody uh, just kind of review the pieces that we've been talking about, writing about over at beenawake.com. Let me know, by the way, if you're watching the video, what you think of the new studio. It's pretty cool. I don't know. I, I've enjoyed. I've been, I, I probably spend too much time playing with things like this, but I, I enjoy putting together a good frame, something that looks aesthetically pleasing, such that you will enjoy watching it just as much as you would enjoy listening it. So get ready for more video in 2022. That's what we're going to be focusing on. We have, I have for you, a bunch of great articles that I put out at beenawake.com between the last episode and today kind of covers the holiday break a little bit, and we're going to get into it. We're going to get into some of the bigger ideas for 2022 that I think we all need to be paying attention for. So I thought it would be a good idea. We're not exactly going to be going in the order that I wrote all these things in, but I wanted to I want to start today's episode by just sharing my New Year's message that I have for everybody. Um and then we're going to move into the three segments that have been posted of the, of the post-libertarian moment to find the essay that I wrote. You can find fuller uh, interviews that I did with that on the Pete Canona show. Well, what is now the Pete Canona show? What was Free Man Beyond the Wall, the Lines of Liberty flagship with Mark Clare. I also talked about it there. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to go through two original pieces that I put together. One is called Why Evolution Beats Androgyny. And the other one is conservatives stop protesting at Applebee's. So if any of that sounds interesting, make sure that you make sure that you keep watching the stream. If you don't, make sure that you go to binwake.com, subscribe with your email address. I hit 500 on Twitter, which is pretty which which is pretty cool. I mean, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that you do I write for the ages. I've talked about that idea before. You know, even though I do try to write popular stuff, I am the 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 deeper ideas that I try to that I tried to draw out in my work are designed, um, are, are designed to not be for today, but for tomorrow and the day after that as well. See, there's a tendency, there's, there's a tendency in, you know, most news cycles to focus on the now, to focus on what happens right now and to kind of forget about that in the future. And part of what I think part, part of what better sense making is, is part of what part of what the process involves is not forgetting the news that happened yesterday. 
So, so it's not just about it's not just about the new cycle of today. We have to remember what the new cycle was a year ago, maybe two years ago, depending uh, as the case may be. And we're going to get in. We're, so we're going to get into a little bit about why why I think that is, and why I think we need to pay attention to some important ideas going on right now. So, let's kick things off with my with this piece that I entitled "The Future Is Bright for the Free." So as I wrote the piece, I was, uh, well, I wasn't sitting, I was leaning against a high top in Nashville. I had flown, I flew down to Nashville for New Year's Eve weekend to spend some time with some friends, having, having a, having a grand old time. Um, I really actually, I, if, if anybody, if you haven't been, Nashville is a very fun city and apparently it's one of those like fastest growing cities in the United States. So a lot of the, most of the people there who I met were trans, were, were transplants in one form or another. Uh, which is which is always interesting, and and also it, and what makes it interesting is how different it is from a place like Chicago that I grew up in, where even though you see a lot of transplants, there's there's an energy in a city like Nashville that doesn't exist in a in a city like Chicago, or maybe it's just my perception, but I think there's something there. Most of the time, I'm a homebody, but even when even when I'm on the road, because I'm on the road for work a lot. I'll just spend an evening in the hotel, you know, with the company, my own thoughts, maybe reading something most of the time, just like watching something on TV, trying to unwind from a busy day of work. But for the new year, I wanted to travel. I wanted to spend time with people I cared about and I wanted to spend time. I wanted to have fun. More importantly, don't forget about the importance of having fun. See, the way I look at it, it's important to mark occasions like the new year. Some people will argue that when the new year happens is arbitrary, right? After all, you know, the Chinese have their own new year. You have, technically speaking, the Christian calendar resets at Advent, right? It doesn't actually reset at the, reset at the new year. The Christian, the, uh, the Christian new year is, is Advent, at least in Catholicism. At least that's how I was raised. There's, um, oh gosh, I don't want to get this wrong, but isn't Yom Kippur Jewish New Year's, which also happens on a different, on a different scale? Just as a as a note, it's kind of fun. I, I enjoy these kinds of things. Part of the reason why those things ha- why why New Year's happen at different times in other cultures, or rather, other New Years don't happen on January thirty or December thirty first into January first, is because most ancient calendars rely on the moon. Because the moon is a lot easier way. It's a lot easier to judge between a full moon and a full moon than it is to judge based off of the sun. So the Gregorian calendar uses the sun. That's why. New Year's happens at the same time every year. So, so you might quibble, right? You might quibble and you might say, well, it's not that New Year's. Like, what about the other New Year's? Is the, people do the same thing with Christmas, by the way. It's like, did you know that Jesus probably wasn't actually born on December 25th? It's like, yes, it matters when you celebrate stuff, though. And there's a deeper conversation there of, of trying to integrate and, um, and bring in other, other times where human beings were already set to worship, Right, and are already set to mark an occasion, and one of the reasons why Christmas happens near the winter solstice and why New Year's is soon after that has to do with, I would argue, with the fact that it's part of the darkest days every single year, right? So, so you celebrate the fact that there are bright days to come. We go through these cycles every year. Some people would argue that when the New Year happens is arbitrary, but those people miss the point. We need ritual. We need to mark important events in order to be human. That's why I don't miss a wedding and why I'm in Nashville to have fun with some friends, or I was. As it happens, I hope the same for you. We live in times 
we live in times that will be written about in history books. While the powers that be have spent countless dollars, countless dollars in capital to convince you not to gather with your friends and family, we have paid them no mind because we know they are wrong to deny our humanity. That's really what somebody like Fauci does when he dictates you shouldn't see your family for Christmas. He denies your humanity. It was the holidays, and sometimes, sometimes I have you know I have a balancing act of all the other things that I do and trying to make sure that I that I capture ideas, and I don't always capture them in writing, but that's why I have a podcast. I don't have every single article to bring up in front of you in order to prove this, but if you were paying attention to news articles over the Christmas break, or really in that week leading up to Christmas and, and through the new year, we saw multiple stories from the so-called experts who wanted to make sure that you were not spending time with your family over Christmas, that you were making, that you weren't going to go home and spend time with your loved ones. Now, Look, you might say, like, I don't like spending time with my family anyway. Well, then I'm not talking to you, right? If, if you don't want to spend time with your family, that's not the point here. The point is, for people who were interested, for people who were interested in spending time with their family, right, but they were listening to the experts to make sure that things weren't go, that they were, that they were going to be safe. What, what was it that the experts told you? Ah, don't, don't get together with too many people. If you do, make sure they're all vaccinated, if you don't, then, you know, make sure everybody gets tested. It wasn't lost on me. And in fact, and in fact, in, in personal correspondence, there was actually a couple of times where the, the comment was made, we need to be careful because so-and-so has to go to work. We need to be careful. We can't get people sick because so-and-so needs to go to work. There's that like, but, but, but do you see what that, do you see what that does? There are deeper human things, right? Getting together with people and during the holidays is one of the, I would argue, is one of those things. You can call it religious. You can call it just being human. It doesn't really matter from my perspective. But I do think it matters to spend time with the people that you care about. And what the government told you, if you were listening to them, which if you're listening to the show, you're probably not listening to them. So th there's a little bit of a rhetorical flourish here, but it serves the point. The point was ask yourself, the point is to ask yourself the question, why is it more important for us to go to work than it is for us to gather with our family? Of course, if you, if you think about that for a little bit, you'll realize that it's, it's not, right? Like spending time with your family should be more important or spending time with your loved ones, let's just use that as a placeholder, should be the more important thing. But people are terrified right now of losing their income and they're terrified of losing their income if they get a negative or a positive test. And so therefore, you're terrified to go and spend time with your family members so that you can go back to work on Monday. See, these are the kinds of dark things that the, these are the dark ideas that they're playing with. These are the dark um, impulses that they're preying upon, frankly, I would argue. See, now for me, getting back to the piece, I'm very excited about the future. Are there troubled waters ahead? Absolutely. In fact, these next couple of years might be the hardest times humans have experienced since the dawn of the industrial age. Even so, for those of us who are prepared, who are ready to face what is to come, there will be a brighter day. The mission of the Been Awake Project is better sense-making. What I endeavor to do in this newsletter and in this show is give you a better frame to analyze the world around you. 
More specifically, Been Awake is about giving you the tools to understand why the news is a cycle. There's a song you know, even if you don't know the words. It's called All Line Sign, or For the Sake of Old Times. You probably know how the song starts. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lying sign? For the sake of old times. We are not static beings. I've been hitting on this point a lot recently. It's one of the reasons why, for example, if you've been paying close attention, why I've taken exception to some particular schools of anarchism and specifically agorism. Because we're not static beings. We grow, we change, we evolve. Sometimes that does mean an old acquaintance is forgotten. But to those who stay, we raise a cup and say here's to you. So cheers, salud, and remember, the future is bright for the free. And we are the free. If you're listening to this show, you are the free. We're going to get into who the free really are as, as the year progresses. So the next piece is, this is from, this is from my, the essay that I wrote. This essay, of course, is, the post, is, is available at postlibertarianmoment.com if you want to download the entire PDF. And we're just going through, I'm releasing it every Monday, each section. And we're just going to kind of go over the few that, um, the, the, few that, the few that I missed uh, between this episode and the last. Heading into the, so this, this is the section entitled Trump. Heading into the 2016 election, a liber- libertarians weren't alone as a people. There were college groups like the Young Americans for Liberty, an outgrowth of the Ron Paul presidential runs, organizing activists across the country and spreading the message, as many are fond of saying. Dr. Rand Paul's, Dr. Dr. Rand Paul, Ron's son, was seen as a probable contender for president, ready to give Jeb Bush, please clap, a run for his money in the Republican primary. That is, until Donald Trump. I would argue Donald Trump remains an anomaly in American politics, and his chaotic entrance and campaign shocked many Americans, especially the elite media, to their core. He did what no other Republican would dare, counterpunch the media and the left. Lest we forget, presidential loser Hillary Clinton colluded with the press to elevate Trump's profile as WikiLeaks demonstrated the Pied Piper strategy was designed to. So before I get into the quote, just so we're all just so we're all on the same page here. So lest we forget, there was a WikiLeaks dump. And of course, Julian Assange right now is fighting for his life. He's still, I believe, in maximum security prison in the UK. The US is trying to extradite him for crimes he didn't commit. Because of course, journalism shouldn't be a crime in the United States of America. And that's what Julian Assange is. So in the WikiLeaks dumps during the 2016 election, we discovered this little gem called the Pied Piper strategy, quoting from an email. And, and of course, I have, if you go, you can follow the hyperlinks to the original piece, uh, the, uh, the, rather the original WikiLeaks dump, quoting, Use the field as a whole to inflict damage on itself, similar to what happened to Mitt Romney in 2012. The variety of candidates is a positive here. These are instructions, by the way, for, from uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign to Democratic operatives, both in and outside of the media. And of course, the media ends up, places like CNN got a hold of this and they ran with this strategy. The variety of candidates is a positive here. And many of the lesser known can serve as a cudgel, as a cudgel, to move, more, to move the more established candidates further to the right. In this scenario, we don't want to marginalize the more extreme candidates 
but make them more Pied Piper, quote-unquote, candidates who actually represent the mainstream of the Republican Party. Pied Piper candidates include, but aren't limited to, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, Ben Carson. (laughs) Remember how Ben Carson ran for president in 2016? Doesn't that seem so long ago? We need to be, continuing to quote, we need to be elevating the Pied Piper candidates so they are leaders of the pack and tell the press to take them seriously. So it would be, so that's one of the reasons, by the way, other than the fact that people were interested in in Donald Trump, but there is a feedback effect of the media elevating somebody like Trump and Trump becoming more popular. And of course, they have to backpedal and they'll deny these kinds of things or they'll, 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 they'll just completely ignore the fact that these leaks happened. But, but this, is, this is the way that I look at the 2016 election, for whatever else you might say. And by the way, in 2016, I was not a big fan of Donald Trump. Still not the biggest fan of Donald Trump, but I understand now more than I did then why people liked him. And the reason why I did is because I'm not interested I'm not interested in just giving my opinion. I'm interested in understanding. I'm interested, mind you, I'm interested in trying to figure out why people think the way that they do. And so in 2016, I said, let's look at Donald Trump as an anomaly. Let's not look at him as the most evil thing in the world. And that kind of a frame has helped me reach a greater point of understanding, a greater understanding as a consequence. That is my method. Suffice to say, Trump's elevation and charisma meant the libertarian moment of 2016 never happened. It was not the case that somebody like Rand Paul took over the field, that he dominated the way we thought he might, the way we, the way we thought we, he, we wanted him to. And I'm a big fan of Rand Paul, by the way. I've never been one of these libertarians that spends their time trashing him because he chooses to be a Republican or because he chooses not to be exactly like his father. There's, a, there's an element of hubris, I think, in that. There's an element of hubris in just assuming that the son is going to do the exact same thing as the father. I think, in effect, and certainly, over, certainly throughout this COVID tyranny, Rand Paul has shown himself. He has shown himself to be a leader, the leader that, frankly, Americans could, would do well to follow more. Again, that's just how I've always looked at him. So the next segment from the, from the post-libertarian moment to find is called the 2020 Lockdowns. I can still remember sitting at my desk trying to work. Really, like everyone else, I was waiting for the governor of my state to decree whether people would show up to work on Monday. It was then I learned my work was deemed essential. Lest we forget, what began as 15 days to slow the spread has lasted over 600. We're coming up on two years. It won't be too long before we're two years into this, by the way, as I record this. Millions, millions of people will go to their grave believing that mass lockdowns and disruptions to everyday life was warranted by the novel coronavirus. Those of us sensitive to government overreach found a new resistance when we disagreed with government mandates. Disagreement online was, and we were only online at this point, disagreement online was not perceived as a nuisance of Facebook. Oh, people are so political on Facebook, it's annoying. But a threat to the very survival of humanity. Of course, the media's narratives surrounding issues like climate change, microaggressions, and so on had cleared a path to this moment. Speaking out against growing government tyranny in the age of COVID has shown, this is my contention, speaking out against growing government tyranny in the age of COVID has shown the path of tolerance for left-wing progressives is the road to hell paved with good intentions. 
where microaggressions could be considered hyperbolic, not wearing a mask means you're trying to kill someone. That's what the TV told progressives, and millions of Americans bought into that idea. Whether they are correct or whether they are participants in a mass delusion is not my point. These are the times libertarians find themselves in. The libertarian movement began with a few academics in the 1960s and has expanded into a popular movement by 2008, with the third largest political party in the freest country in the world bearing its name. Yet, in 2020, we could do nothing to stop the government from going tyrannical. We need to sit and we need to focus on this idea. This is why I wrote this essay, was was for that point in particular. There's more points I make later on, but this is the historical case that I'm bringing people to the present by examining. So libertarians had been a movement of some kind growing for, okay, what, 40, 50, so 60 years? Maybe 50 to 60 years, depending on the modern American libertarian movement. Depends on, you, you can start the clock at a couple different places, but that's, the, that's where I started the clock in the essay. The third largest political party in the United States bears the name Libertarian. I hope that changes. The freest country in the world, or so we said, bared the name American, freedom, liberty. These are the ideas that people, people associate with the United States of America. But in 2020, in 2020, where were libertarians? We weren't in power. Why? Because, because we eschew political power as, as a people. And we didn't stop the government from going tyrannical. And this is why you need to change your perception if you're a libertarian. If you're already a conservative, right-winger, um, disaffected liberal from the left, you, you understand this more, I think, than some of the libertarians would. Why? Because, the, I, in, because in my estimation, insofar as I've... In, excuse me, insofar as I've examined this issue and I've tried to come to some sort of understanding on it, I think it has to do in large, in large regard with the statist paradigm. By always being against the state, you miss the instance in which the state probably would have been more useful. Imagine if there were five senators that voted with Rand Paul at all times. Imagine if there were five good senators like that. Right now, the Senate is 50-50. Right, Kamala Harris has to pass the tie-breaking votes when it, when it occurs. Imagine if there was a voting block of five, ten Republican libertarians in the Senate. Maybe this, and this is the, you know I'm not here to I'm not here to re-adjudicate history, but it's worth pondering if lib, if the libertarian movement, if the liberty movement wasn't so obsessed. If the libertarian movement wasn't so obsessed with, um, if the libertarian movement wasn't so obsessed with being perfect, maybe we could have, maybe we actually could have done some good, because that's frankly, that's that's the kind of thing that we're up against. Hang on, real quick, I'm going to invite you in, Pete. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba, where do I get the link? Invite guests, Cappy. See if Signal opens up quickly here. All right, so we're going to move on to the next piece, but I want it, but that's, that's a piece that I want to hit. The next one, the next part of the essay is the LPMC. Of course, we're still going through the history right now. You may think it worthwhile to trace. 
One sec, we are live. Boom. All right. Sent. Uh, you may think it worthwhile to trace the history of the Libertarian Party back 50 years, but the popular modern Libertarian movement was not concerned with the Libertarian Party until the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus, or LPMC, began to recruit members into the political party after the failed Johnson Weld ticket of 2016. In, an ep in episode 1010 of The Tom Woods Show in 2017, LPMC chairman Michael Heiss, when asked about the strategy of the LPMC, said, quote, Our first call to action that we're really doing to rally people is to vote for new leadership. There are people in leadership who are more of the Bill Weld ilk or who don't represent the message in a, in a way in a way variety. Ooh, I didn't do a good job of quoting that out of that or the quote was bad <laughs> that we are, that we are like, or we are used to. So we want to make it more Ron Paul and less Bill Weld. So Michael Heiss wants to make the libertarian party more, more Ron Paul and less Bill Weld. That's not the worst thing in the world. All things considered. The LPMC has been highly successful in recruiting libertarians to their cause, including many high profile fixtures, figures like Tom Woods, Scott Horton, and Dave Smith. The takeover, as it is now being called, is well underway, and the caucus expects to take control of the LNC at the National Convention in May of 2022. The caucus has succeeded in taking over the leadership of many state affiliates prior to the National Convention. Before 2020, political action was largely an academic question for libertarians. In the shadow cast by lockdowns, political action has far more dramatic consequences. The LPMC gave libertarians looking to, quote, do something, a place to do it, and a community of like-minded individuals to, ne to network with. What is often lost in the criticisms of the LPMC is the recognition that they have become an authority on what political action should look like for libertarians. Whether they have the right prescription is a different matter entirely worthy of its own investigation. And of course, I investigate that later on in this, in this essay. The LPMC has been operating for over four years in an effort to take over the Libertarian Party. The standing guard within the Libertarian Party has not welcomed the influx of new activists. In fact, in fact, whoops, lost my place. Various factions within the LP work explicitly against the LPMC, creating a culture war within a party that eschews culture wars. Put another way, there are good hard-working libertarians who are spending hours of their week and hundreds of their dollars joining a political party that is explicitly rejecting them. The explicit plan is to take over the LNC and the boards for each of the state affiliates. This will ensure real libertarian runs for president in 2024, though everyone understands a libertarian on the LP ticket will not win in the 2024 election. When the LPMC is successful in taking over the libertarian party, they will still face the uphill battle that all third parties do in the USA. This will make it that much harder for good libertarian candidates to be elected to positions they could win, either without a political party or with the GOP. We're going to pause right here from normal programming to welcome in the great Pete Quinones. What's up, Pete? Hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? Nothing too much. So we're just reading through. We're starting the show today by reading through some of the essays that we talked about on your show. And... Mm -hmm. You know, we just got through the part of the LPMC kind of giving a little bit of a history of them. I don't think I think we can leave this. We talked about this well enough. I really want your um, remarks, since you were so kind to spend some of your time here on this next piece I wrote. I don't know if you caught it. Evolution beats androgyny. No. Why modern identities feel bad. So we'll go ahead. And so my normal style is to just read through and comment on it. 
So I'll kind of start reading through, and when you want to say something, feel free. Um, cool. So, but as we begin, we're going to want to remember one of the greatest scenes in American cinematography, certain to, circa 2006. And of course, this is uh, the Cerulean Top from from Devil Wears Prada. Now, you use Restream, actually. If I play this, it should give me the audio, right? Or do I have to do something it weird? Should, it should. Okay, cool. Let me know if you hear it. It's not loud enough. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm no. not hearing it. Okay. I think it's coming. Th- it was coming through on the wrong uh, speaker. So we'll just read this. because. <laughs> so if you're not familiar, this is an Anne Hathaway, Meryl Streep chick flick. It's one of my favorites, I'll be honest with you. And it's one of my favorite things because it shows... Because the fashion world... Because everyone's like aware of how the fashion world works and that fashion is kind of this thing that doesn't really exist, even though it does. And this is, and so in the piece, Anne Hathaway is just starting off the role and they're like holding up two belts that look pretty much identical to the untrained eye and she kind of scoffs. And so Meryl Streep delivers this monologue. She says, you think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's cerulean. You're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, was it? Who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here, she says. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collection of eight different designers, and it filtered down through the department stores and then trickled into some tragic, casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. It's sort of comical how you think you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room. Well, now, Pete, we're not in the same room, but... did, have you watched this movie? Are you kind of familiar with this scene at all? If not, what do you think about it? I'm not familiar with the scene at all, but I mean, it is. Um, it, it's, it almost seems like it's a like, like the person was reading I pencil or something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's this it's this idea of how ideas. So like I've tried to I've tried to map out how ideas move through uh, like through a society, through a network of people, as, as the case may be. And what I love about this scene is that you have, so like for, for a backstory of the character, Anne Hathaway's character doesn't want to work in fashion, but if you work for the devil who wears Prada, I can't remember the person who it's based off of, you can basically go anywhere in the magazine world because her recommendation is worth, is worth everything. So it's this anti-fashion person who eventually becomes consumed by passion, and then in the end she realizes all the things that she had lost because, you know, it's, it, is a, it is like a rom-com chick flick kind of thing. But it's a, it's a good movie, and I love this scene because... As somebody who spent some time working in fashion, not particularly high, but understanding people would always walk in and ask me, what's the most fashionable thing? And I would always kind of pivot that as I was a suit salesman by saying, fashion is cyclical, style is eternal. Reading from the piece, it says, I say, what is fashionable will always change in part because fashion is a signaling method. Making something as fleeting as fashionable look Oh, making something as fleeting as a fashionable look become making that part of your identity is not advised, right? So you shouldn't follow, you shouldn't make fashion part of your identity. And by that, I mean a specific fashion trend. So let's move on to androgyny and then we'll get into the, the, the thrust of the piece. Feel free to stop me whenever. So androgyny is defined by Merriam Webster as the quality or state of being, neither specifically feminine or masculine, 
or the combination of feminine and masculine characteristics. Some people make androgyny their identity, and here's how Cosmopolitan Magazine defines it. I like using Cosmo and these other pieces for, I think, what reasons that are obvious. So androgyny refers to the gender expression of someone with both significant masculine and feminine characteristics. It's important to note that each person's definition of androgynous can and will vary. Androgyny is not defined by societal bounds of looking like a boy or looking like a girl. Now, if that isn't complicated enough, the same piece talks about is androgynous being the same as a sexual orientation. This is, this is, by the way, what they're teaching to like impressionable people, right? So is, is androgynous the same thing as your sexual orientation? Nope. Well, apparently not. While often confused, gender identity, expression, sex, and sexual orientation are distinct. Gender identity is how you feel. Gender expression is how you express yourself. And sexual orientation refers to the genders you're attracted to. Androgyny is a gender expression, so it's separate from identity, sex, and sexual orientation. You can be androgynous and be straight, gay, asexual, or any orientation. Now, my, now back to me. This kind of overburdensome language comes to us from queer studies and other forms of, quote, scholarship found in the universities and elsewhere. If you weren't clear, if it wasn't clear, gender expression means the clothes you wear. This brings us to a post that was on Instagram's made page. Um, and I almost, funny enough, because I almost didn't want to do this page. I didn't want to do this because there's something, there's something in me that doesn't like going after younger people, especially, especially, you know, younger women. But so we just got this video playing. It says, feeling like you're, uh, you're presenting a androgynous. And somebody says, what a nice woman you are. Excuse me, little lady. What's up girl. And like, you know, it's basically this girl who's, I guess she's some kind of musician who's 20 years old. And I have the long quote, if you want to read the whole thing in there. But you'll watch her walk up to the camera wearing a baseball jersey over t-shirt with words on the screen reading as what we just went through. Each time Miss Grace reacts with a shake of her head as if to say, really? Can't you tell that I'm presenting androgynous? As the video clearly demonstrates, when Addison Grace tries to look androgynous, everyone still sees a young woman. This is because Miss Grace, and I'm trying to say this kindly, looks like a young woman. Millions of years of evolution have made sure that when in doubt, we can distinguish between the basic categories like man and woman. While what it, while what it means to be look, what it means to be to look max, masculine or feminine varies cross-culturally, we instinctually can distinguish biological differences between a man and a woman. So of course, in you know, French history, it was very popular for men to wear tons of makeup. We can think of we can think of the founding fathers wearing the wigs, right? Like fashion changes. This is kind of the idea, but there, but there's, there's something real underneath it. You can't, uh, and as I write here, you can't queer your way out of this basic categorization, but that's exactly what the queer scholars attempt to do. So as I said before, when I sold suits, I would tell my clients fashion is cyclical, but style is eternal. It was a useful framing device, so when somebody walks, walked in asking for the most fashionable thing, they walked out with a suit they weren't going to hate in two years. It made, it made for happier customers because I wasn't interested in having them be what was in. I wanted them to look as good as they could. It would be my contention that androgyny and other gender expressions have more to do with fashion than anyone's identity. What queerness sets out to do is, in turn... What queerness sets out to do is turn every categorization in on itself. It's not enough to be a beautiful man or an intelligent woman. You must break down these categories to discover the true queerness that lies underneath or some other such argument. For queer scholars, being queer is an identity without an essence. 
Addison Grace is no different than Anne Hathaway's character thinking that her fashion choices, or lack thereof, were decisions she arrived at independently. Androgynous dress is just another iteration of people in a room deciding what should be. In a previous post, I discussed how the concept of personal pronouns isn't really about connecting people with their true selves, it's meant to make well-intentioned people feel bad that they can't keep up with the latest fashion. Addison Grace is not the creator. She is merely the puppet of forces beyond her control. She has been told that, quote, presenting androgynous is more than cultivating a style. It is an immutable portion of her identity. The consequence of this identity without an essence is that they look like a she no matter how much she tries. And that makes them feel bad. I mean, there's so many, th- so many things popped into my head, um, so many correlations I can make. Um, to politics, to libertarianism, to a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as you started talking about androgyny, I immediately popped into my head. You know, you're we're neither left nor right kind of thing. So you're like you're androgy- politically androgynous. Yeah, right. Know? Well, but, and, and, um, and I think part of what we're part of where we are currently is recognizing this idea that yeah, we might ha- we might be signaling this at one point or another, but there's something realer underneath. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting to think about where that signal comes from. We're neither left nor right. And I think, and you hit this on a previous stream. I think, um, was it, was it Kaczynski's greatest trick? Where were you? You were talking about how like libertarianism almost is a trap for some people because, because it kind of locks you into this. It locks you into an idea. Well, here, here's, here's what I thought about it, which is, is kind of like this way and almost in which, we're so programmed as Americans that everything right wing is wrong, even mm-hmm. even even in the strictest sense of right, just kind of meaning orderly, generally conservative, a little more on the traditional side of things. We're so programmed, I think, that this is a wrong way of viewing the world that for a lot of us, myself included, as you're kind of coming up and you're you're engaging upon an intellectual journey, you're like, well, I'm not really like I'm not really a conservative. Right. I just changed my my dating profile to say conservative because I was tired of having other. But I'm not I'm not really I'm more of a traditionalist, but I'm not really a conservative personality. I'm very creative. I'm very open. I don't really fit into the mold in that respect. And I think part of I think part of what libertarianism grants some people is this thing of like, well, I'm, I'm not a leftist, at least. Right. But but we're simultaneously supposed to believe that we're neither left nor right when we do something like this. Right. And this is. Go ahead. So um, I was I have this book uh, on uh, it's basically like a Cliff Notes version and a commentary on James Burnham's books mm-hmm. by by Samuel Francis. Um, I know he's he's a bad person to a lot of people. <laughs> um, and what's funny is I was reading um, Suicide of the West, which he put out in 64, uh, which is a critique of liberalism. Um, it's not only a critique of American liberalism, it's a of what we think of liberalism today, but it's a, a critique of liberalism altogether. Mm-hmm. Hey, what's up, man? All right. So here's what he says. This is this is Francis explaining what Burnham has to say about liberalism. Burnham then proceeded to an explanation of the social and psychic functioning of the ideology of liberalism its order of values, its psychological dynamic by which it induces guilt and translates guilt into social action, 
its selective indignation and double standard by which it refuses to identify enemies on the left and locates them only on the right, and the dialectic of liberalism, the real meaning as opposed to the formal meaning expressed in the liberal theory, ideas, values, and policies. And what he's saying basically is, is that built into liberalism, and even if you want to relate this to modern day progressivism or whatever, it ha- it forces you, it forces some to ignore the left. So you hear this thing, well, the left mean, means well, they're just misguided, mm-hmm. but the right's, the right's evil. Right. It causes so many people, and you see this in libertarianism too, to look at the right as the most evil, even though the right is like for over a forever, I mean, hasn't been in power forever. Um, and the right has been demonized for the last 368 days. Like they're insurrectionists. If you Trump started an insurrection, so if you voted for Trump, if you're on the right, you're an enemy of the state. And you can never like, you know, I called out that Alex uh, Narasta, whatever his name is at Cato, um, because he was, you know, he's the borders guy. He's the open borders guy. He's the the globalist who, you know, I mean, that's all I can think he is. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to, pump himself up and build himself up because he had appeared on Tucker Carlson. And I'm like, it's funny that a guy like this would use Tucker Carlson as to try to get some kind of gravitas, some kind of legitimacy when Tucker's done a documentary where he clearly calls out uh, January 6th, 2021 as a, um, as a fed plot. And, does Alex agree with that? You know, and so the left is completely open borders, which isn't true, well, though. Right, like ninety percent of the ninety percent of the country is anathema. That's kind of yeah, my yeah. position. Like, I think this, and it's the same kind of thing of like the individualism versus collectivism thing. Is these are like rhetorical or rational categories that are kind of constructed for the purposes of having an argument that. As, as we've kind of talked about with my essay, are out of date, right? So, like, n- right. Nobody's, nobody's really closed borders, as far as I can tell. I, right. I would say, like, I'm sure there are some people, but and, if and you're nobody's in America, open borders. Right, exactly. Well, except Ex- I think well, people actually are. a bunch of libertarians, except <laughs> for... But, th- but that number is so small. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. If you talk to people, I mean, completely open borders. I'm talking about back and forth across. Yeah. Alex Narasta, whatever his name. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce his name. It's it's Norwash it, or something it's like sophomore, that. It, it's it's sophomoric of me to, mm-hmm. um, to make fun of his name. But he is. He's completely open borders. And But if you were to really nail down most people in this country, I think that most people on the left, on the right and on the left are – they're not anti-immigration. They're just, they want some kind of mechanism where this person doesn't have COVID. They're not a murderer. Mm-hmm. They're some kind of, you know, they're not bringing TB in or, you know, they're not something like that. And well, I mean, and in that conservatives are more 
you know, detail or just in, concerned with order and that the right is more concerned with order, really most, most conservative, especially because there's two conversations, right? There's the conversation of how we got here and there's the conversation of where we are. Part of the conversation of how we got here is this, is this conversation happening over and over again. And I started this show by talking about one thing that better, one thing that better sense making does is it helps you not only realize the new cycle of today, but the new cycle of yesterday, so, for example, the immigration debate, as far as I've been paying attention to American politics, has been, has been this. We need to let more immigration come in. That says the Democrats and the Republicans say, okay, sure, but like, you know, we should have a process for it. It's like, no, 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 we need to let more people in. Like, they need to cross, and okay, but, but we shouldn't let people just cross over the border willy-nilly, right? Like, there has to be some kind of a rule. Like, no, 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 no. We've basically been pushed until, the, until we effectively get to the point where it's like, well, we need to build a wall. Like that's because that's the only thing people can rally around. I think Glenn Beck said it really, really well when he said the wall, the, the whole wall, because there's so much symbolism in there's so much symbolism in political rhetoric, especially as it's maximized across the population. But the symbolism of a wall is saying, we don't trust you, Washington, D.C. We don't trust you guys anymore to fix this problem. Forget your gang of eight bills. Forget your pathway to citizenship. We just need we need this wall because we think this is going to be what keeps people out. Now they're now they're not exactly right about that. Where there is a will, there's a way. People are still going to figure out how to overstay their visas and figure out how to cross the border. That's not the point. And by the way, as far as I'm concerned, this also the point is also not to discuss the person who's literally coming to America because they have no other choice for them. Right. But what is happening right now are people abusing the refugee system. Right. That is, that's what's happening right now. These massive migrations. That's why they're just crossing the border and waiting there. Ten years ago, the conversation about border crossings was about how dangerous it was because they need to spend all this time in the desert. Now there's no danger once you reach the American border because they're going to put you up and release you back into the population. Now, it's cruel to establish any kind of a border. That's a border around your family, around your friend group, or around your country. It's cruel to, to, to exclude people. Have you ever had a dinner party, Pete? Have you ever not invited somebody to that dinner party? Of course, Did that on t- purpose. Right. <laughs> and was there maybe even a situation where you invited some people over, but you didn't invite somebody else because you knew they didn't get along with this one person? Yeah, you could look at that as being cruel, or you could say, yeah, I don't know, it's my dinner party and I'm just trying to figure it out. And I'm just trying to have, I don't want to cause, I don't want to have a fight here unnecessarily. And I think this is where there's so much, there's so much we lose in these political conversations because we're stuck, um, we're stuck responding to these narratives that have been ingrained with us over the course of, you know, like I said, my entire life, right? It's always between, I mean, in my own family, when these arguments come up, it's always about, but they're breaking the rules, and then the other side is, yeah, but we kind of broke the rules too when we came here. And, you know, as Cubans, it's not exactly the case, but, but, it, but it does happen, right? People do break the rules and they end, up, they end up doing good because of it. That's not the, I don't think that's the conversation any of us are having when we're talking about this, this, this larger question of open, open or closed borders. You know, my, my position is that freedom needs a limit. Without limit, there is no freedom. And so we have to understand that we have to, we have, we understand that we have to draw borders around these things. We have to draw borders around everything without drawing a border around something. You can't actually know what is Jordan Peterson, I think had a great way of putting this where like the right is really good at making boxes around stuff. That's one of the reasons why, like, 
you know, that's one of the reasons why the race essentialists out there never really caught sway in libertarianism, mainstream conservatism or anything like that. Because it's like, yeah, no, we don't we don't need this this ancient Germanic romanticism from like the 1700s coming back into the fore where we're just be- we're, we're, we're like identifying the beauties of the white race. I don't care about that stuff. I'm not interested in that stuff. And in fact, one of the re- and the right is good at drawing a border around that and saying, no, you know, who's not good at drawing borders? The left. And, and, and so we basically have to accept the idea that a communist is just as valid as a progressive. Now, they're both not great, but I'll take at least at least a progressive recognizes uh, at least the progressive recognizes the, uh, the, the I guess the, the basic idea of, of like something. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm floundering right now to find something good to say. The point being, in a world where we have to treat communists the same as liberals, and those are equally the left, is not a world that makes any kind of sense. And in fact, we need to draw we need to draw lines, we need to draw borders around these things. And I think that's what we miss in the immigration debate by insisting upon this like necessary division, the same necessary division libertarians do, by the way, between individualism and collectivism. This is these are rational categories. Rational categories aren't rocks and plants. They don't exist in absolute terms. They can't. And so why are we like, so why are we pretending that they are? Well, you know, because we basically were living fat and high on the hog and we didn't really have anything to worry about. Well, maybe you can help me with this because the point I was trying to make is that the it seems like, okay, so take modern um, libertarianism, um, any libertarianism that isn't like Mises based, um, you're they embrace the same policies as the left, open borders, um, abortion, all these things. What and help me with this, I'll because I'm trying to think about it. What classic um, positions on the right do libertarians embrace and are willing to fight for and go to the mat for? I guess I guess for me, I look at a lot of those as being I mean, I don't know, gun rights, I guess, would be one of those. Yeah. Where, okay. Yeah. Ish. What I think, but I don't, I, I don't think, yeah, I, but we don't see that, right? I don't, we don't think they're the, looking. The person you're talking about, yeah, yeah. The person you're no, talking yeah. about doesn't talk about gun rights in an absolute sense, right? They talk about it as they get upset when Thomas Massey posts a picture with his family holding AR-15s. So, so to your point, it's not that. I think, I, I think it, go, I think it traces back to this idea of how information and how opinions move throughout a society. What is fashionable? So, part of what I based that piece on about androgyny was I think it's Simmel, who might have, uh, as the case may be, might have actually, I think he took like a Marxist view of these kinds of things, but I think his insight was really, really good. I read this forever ago for a, for like a presentation I gave on the philosophy of fashion. And part of, and part of what he talks about is how fashion is a signal the elites use, right? And, and that's why fashion is always changing. That's why if you look at the runways in Milan and Paris, they kind of look like aliens because nobody you know is dressing like that, right? It's this idea of we are going to be so ostentatious, we are going to be so avant-garde, right, about something that we can clearly show ourselves as being different from from the other, from the lower classes. And what happens then is like, so if you think of this in a hierarchical sense, the class right behind them 
is then going to okay well so let's say it you know i'm wearing like i'm wearing this cool hat that my brother got me um it's by the way the company is it's filson somebody in the chat was asking about recognizing that hat from somewhere it's a it's a company on the west coast but so like so the so like let's say everybody starts wearing hats like this right in the fashionable things you see the pharrells you see the uh <laughs> jump Kaczynski 2024 but but to the point, it, the MAGA hat's an, a good example of this too, but let's stick with the high culture. Let's say, you know, so everybody starts wearing a hat like this. And so then like the group, so the richest of the rich get that hat. Well, then in the next year, they didn't sell all those hats. So a couple of them go on sale. So then, like the people just below that strata, they start buying those hats. Well, once enough people start buying these hats, now the top needs another way to signal that they're the top. So maybe they switch into like, Maybe they switch into wearing like a satchel. Maybe they switch into wearing only uh, like, you know, only collared shirts or only a Mandarin collar or something. You know, the fashion changes, right? You know, for a while there, we distressed jeans were really popular in the early 2000s. Now they're popular again, right? Like Moto was really big a couple of years ago. So you would get a pair of jeans that would look a little bit like a motocross racer, even though it had nothing to do with it. Cargo pa- cargo pockets on pants were big about five years ago. These are different trends that kind of happen every single year. And people in rooms, like the scene we were talking about from, from the Devil Wears Prada, they kind of just decide it. All right, this year, orange is going to be the big, the big color, right? This year, it, and, and because they're in a position of authority and power, they can actually influence that. What I enjoy about fashion is that it's kind of like sports where there isn't a lot of consequence to it because people don't have the same emotional investment in it. And if, and if you are emotionally invested in the fashion world, you understand exactly what I'm talking about because this is what you do for a living. And as this relate, and so the same thing happens with political opinions. I don't, I mean, if you go basically up until 2016 in, as, it's, as this traces to immigration, then I'll get to, the, get to the, the point of what you were asking before. Like immigration was like five or six on if, if people were ranking their, their issues and then suddenly became the most important thing. And I can remember going to DC and I was at a party with people who were in politics, working for major senators that people would recognize working and working for different nonprofits in the beltway. And I remember it was the weirdest thing to me how in my everyday life, nobody was talking about immigration, but every single person at this in, in DC we're talking about the problems with immigration and how we just need to make things better for 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 for, for people. This is all to say, it's a I think it's a, I think it's just a fashionable opinion for people to hold, right? If I'm at the top, it looks good for me to be to signal that I care about people at the bottom. And of course, you know, the conservative right-wing response to this is like, yeah, but they're not taking they're not moving into your neighborhoods. They're not taking the they're not competing for the same jobs as you. And that's why and I think that's why people specifically the, the libertarian type that we're discussing will always signal to that left-wing position. It's 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 to the point where it's like you don't even understand why you wouldn't do something like that unless you're unless you're such a contrarian to begin with that you kind of recognize the social control for what it is. So like, as long as we all agree that immigrants are super important to America, well, then we can talk about everything you, everything you want. But if you say, Hey, maybe the century of immigration that we had in the 20th shouldn't repeat itself in the 21st. Maybe, maybe at this point, now that the United States has been completely settled for the most part, we should take a look at the way that we're doing immigration. You're not allowed to, you can't, right? You can't say that's, that's not considered a valid opinion. If, if let's pretend for a second, we had 
a let's pretend for a second we had a Congress that that would like actually pass bills and wasn't you know that was actually interested in solving problems the way that the normies do. But like let's pretend about that for a second. Pretty easy compromise would be okay. Everyone who's here right now, you guys are going to be granted some kind of citizenship. There's only one hang up: no voting rights for ten years. Or if you crossed illegally, you're never going to get voting rights, but you can work here, you can live here, you can do all this. That sounds like a political compromise that could change the face of the United States of America. Integrate the immigrants, integrate the immigrants who are currently here, remove the under, you know, the underlying economy that Milton Friedman talked about, where the big corporations uh, profit off of the backs of of, un, of low paid immigrant work, right? Uh, like illegal, um, you know, paying below the minimum wage or whatever, because because they're illegals and so they're not going to run away or they're not and they're not going to go to the police. Like you could you could do something like that. So why doesn't that happen? Well, it doesn't happen because to the point the left isn't interested in working with the right in this manner, right? There's no there's no sense that there has to be any kind of balance to these ideas because it's always in one direction. And of course then there's the added point of like, well this is what creates a voting block as well if you go down like one or two generations. Mhm. Well, you know, one of the things that gets pointed out all the time, and I think um, is Michael Malice's um, conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. Um, and that's mostly because when, you know, the left is in charge, it's been in charge for a long time. So when the right gets in, um, they really can't get anything done and they just end up compromising. Whereas the left gets, when, when the left's in power, which they always are, they're just, they're their ideology is fluid towards strength. Everything mm-hmm. is flowing towards power, whereas the ideology of the right is fluid and flowing towards weakness because they're willing to compromise where the left isn't. And you see that in the right over and over again. Oh, we're going to reach across the aisle. We're going to get. We're going to bring this person in. We're going to bring that person in. And we're going to. And the left just doesn't care about that. Um, well, and I think, and and to and to drill down on that, I think that has a lot to do with progressivism, right? So I I I still remain completely unconvinced as to like the futility of all liberalism. I would say the futility, like the problem with liberalism, is that it's ripe for capture. And in fact, nobody said, "Hey, today, guys, from now on, we're doing liberalism." Right? That's that's the whole concept of laissez-faire. It's not that it was a system that was developed in any sort of meaningful way. It just kind of happened. This is this is what somebody like Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe would talk about, would refer to the free market as. So what liberalism accomplished was, in my estimation, in my, my historical view, was immediately taken over by progressivism. Now, the way I would put it, progressivism has a right and a left element. And, and the right-wing element of progressivism is basically the national GOP. Right, they're warmongers. They're big spenders. They have nothing in common with a constitutional order, which, given that it's trying to limit the effect of power, you know, is is more of a is more of a right wing idea. We we might say to be, for for succinctness for succinctness sake, um, and I think I think that frame kind of helps us see what we're going on right now. To wit, there in liberalism, there's a left and there is a right wing element. And this, and in this way, we can answer the question, how are conservatives both against progressives and against liberals? And we can also keep in, keep in mind Malice's formulation, which is conservatives are progressives driving the speed limit. Because the conservatives are progressives by and large, because we live under progressive, we've lived under progressive rule for the better part of a century. And, you know, Marjorie, it's funny because Marjorie Taylor Greene was on Tim, Tim Pool this past week 
And she was, uh, she talked about like corporate communism. And it's like, Oh, you're so close. It's corporate socialism. And, and, and like, and that's what I, I would argue. That's really what progressivism is because you basically had on the continent, cause we have to understand these things historically on the continent. We have fascism and communism, fascism, communism was international. Fascism was national. And then in the, in the new world, in the United States, we had progressivism, which was kind of this combination that, in, that also invoked like empire building, right? And this empire building was a huge part of the American right, or, uh, of the American left and right at the dawn of the century. Um, in any event, that's, I, I think, I really do think as far as it goes with the Alexes of the world at Cato is a lot of this just has to do with the network effect. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that people don't like being perceived as cruel. And it's kind of cruel to say you can't come to the richest country on the world in the world. And, and, and by the way, as the case may be, I'm, I, I think, I think the people who want to come here should in that they're the people who deserve to come here. Right. It's, Oh, but, but that first wave, that first wave, anybody should come. It's the second, the third, the fourth wave where you're like, okay, maybe we need to watch the way this is going here. You know, with the example of people who escaped communism or other such forces, there's the technological change we can bring into this. There's the instability in the, in, in Central America and South America with the United States as a, that the United States has a hand to play in. This is a, I, I, when I've written about it, I've said human migration because like the term immigration is kind of anathema to history if you think about it. But human beings have been migrating as long as we've been people. So human migration is about as complicated a subject as you could dare to like envision. So why are we pretending it's as simple as saying open and closed borders? Well, we're pretending that in large regard because of the social control that's been taught and inculcated within the American population, the cult of American democracy, as I like to call it, for you know going on 50 to 100 years, depending on when you want to start the clock. Well, you also have, the, have to deal with, um, I don't know in history going back, I'd really have to look at this, about where you have mass movements of people that are planned by somebody outside of them okay so if ten thousand haitians show up on the border and they're not coming from haiti but they're coming from south america some from brazil and i think some were coming from chile Mm -hmm. um part okay so how they get there i mean you can understand immigration where you know people one-offs and two-offs a family comes you know and it's just people coming coming but when you have something like that that's planned that's meant, um, and anyone who's studied Europe over the last you know, 10, 15 years and seen these mass migrations of young men into countries um, and basically changing the culture of Europe mm-hmm. and you know, Germany, places like that, where Sweden, where they've, I mean, rape has literally become socially acceptable. Yeah, because something they we do don't talk not, about. They do not want to insult the people who have come from somewhere else. I mean, it's basically become a cult in Sweden. Yeah. I asked Tim Poole because Tim Poole has been in Sweden. He's like, oh, it's just a cult. Um, so these questions need to be asked, too. So these mass migrations in the past, very interesting, you know, a lot of natural cataclysms causing people to move. But something like what we saw on the border two months ago, where you just have 10,000 people of the same nationality showing up, not from their country of origin. It's like, wait a minute, what? Why is this happening? And how is this happening? And who's funding it? 
because they well, don't, we, we kind of, how you do they trace eat the whole way? You can trace it and you can find out who's funding it. And it's not that surprising when you actually look into it, who's funding a lot of these movements. I think it's the, the Puebla organization, which is like a well-known open borders movement is one of the reasons why you can have these massive logistical movements of people coming up from Central and South America. And, and, and I'll just reiterate the point because it, it, because it, it does matter to me because I care about humanity is these people are being led. They're being led astray by a bad shepherd, right? Who says, and it's the same thing that was happening to the North Africans and the people from the Middle East. And, you know, you can look at the, and by the way, this is why someone like Lauren Southern is considered so anathema because she literally highlighted these things. I can remember, you know, it's like, oh, Lauren Southern is dangerous. It's like, okay, let me go look at the dangerous person. Oh, this isn't that dangerous. I don't love some of the rhetoric. I didn't love it then. I would, I understand it more now. Like, I don't love some of the rhetoric, but this is all factual, right? Like, you can actually see these things happen. And of course, these kinds of markets erupt in these sorts of scenarios because we understand that there's a, you know, we understand in the drug, we understand why drug cartels come to arise. Why wouldn't we understand how human trafficking cartels would come to, would come to rise up in, 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 in the presence of a very bad immigration system? And this is just another way in which we see that the actual, the actual structure of the American system is designed for instability, right? It's designed almost to create the chaotic element. You know, somebody in the chat pointed out Japan, right? Japan has a very, and that Japan doesn't have a lot of crime and they don't have a lot of, and I think the correlation would be that there's not a lot of immigration that's allowed into Japan. It's very, very slight, very, very small amounts. I'm not saying the United, I don't think the United States gets to be Japan, Right. For, for many reasons, we can get into size, size chief among them. But the point being, you're not even allowed to ask the question in polite society because immediately people can demagogue against you in an emotional way. Right. And that's something that that's something I do here on my show. I know you do it on your show is try to examine, try to remove those emotional triggers from things. And if I can, I'd like to help people understand why those emotional triggers are placed there to begin with. Right. Because it's one thing to say, I have sympathy for people who want a better life. And it's another thing to say, these migrant caravans are just a spontaneous occurrence, as I think some people would 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 say. And by the way, as, as the case may be, I think we're probably due for another one because they usually because I wrote a piece about a year ago. I was just looking it up, kind of talking about it. So we're probably due for another one of these things. And it's going to come into the news cycle and everyone's going to be talking about it. And everybody's going to be talking only about open and closed borders. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done. People are just going to get pissed off at each other. And, you know, those people who come here, some of them are going to find a good life for themselves. Their kids, likely not. Not, not as much. Maybe the third generation gets a little bit better. But for every one of those people who come here and becomes despondent and, become, and, and doesn't like America is another person who is, who's primed for the progressive critical theory uh, worldview that says you are, you are a gender queer and identity without an essence, right? You are a BIPOC against the white man, against the white race. I, I start off by, I, I make it very clear in my work that I don't care about race essentialism. I think, I think the work of Thomas Sowell kind of indicates how some of these conversations about like race and IQ are, in, while interesting, you can also serve things up in a different way, right? So like, uh, for example, Thomas, in Discriminations and Disparities, it's a great book if you guys haven't read it. But, you know, he kind of goes through the first, the first chapter is him just kind of saying, all right, well, you know, you're talking about the differences between IQ of the races, but have you ever looked at the difference between IQ and siblings? So like, turns out every astronaut is a firstborn or only child. Turn, turns out that, you know, as far as intelligence goes, the first, the first child is 
always the most is tends to be the most intelligent and as you go down the more children you have there's actually a disparity in in the level of intelligence that can reach if memory serves i could be getting the quote wrong can reach like a standard deviation depending on how many kids you get right you know and if you bring in like cousin marriage and things like that these can obviously be exam- these obviously can be amplified as well plus just in general if you have a traumatic upbringing of one kind like for example if you're abused or something like that that inhibits that inhi- that inhibits um uh, the development of your intelligence, all these kinds of things. These are super, going back to my point, these are super complex questions. Let's stop pretending that they can be summed up in open versus closed borders. And you would think that the people who believe they are the smartest people in the room, the libertarians, would see that the, uh, abortion, borders, intellectual property, all of these things that are argued, I mean, extensively that it's not a black and white issue. I mean, I can even like take the border argument of, um, well, I mean, I think police are legitimate or illegitimate. So police have to man the border. And really you're, you're championing the police if you want that. Okay. I'll, I'll take, that's a very simplistic argument, but I'll take it. I'll, I'll, I'll take it into me that, that doesn't explain 10,000 people showing up at the same time, the same nationality. You, If you're not asking how the hell did this happen and why, why is this happening? That is the question. It's yeah. like, I don't even care where they came from. Why are they there? Because a what lot of people, purpose? because to be simple, a lot of people told them they can have a better life in America. And those are and and those people don't believe in America. Ironically enough, like literally, if you're if you're you know the I think again I think it's the Puebla organization. You can fact check me on that. Um, it's you, it open societies, so you know I don't need to say the boogie word. But like, it, like that's one. I know that was one of them. That I know that was one of the organizations that was that was helping coordinate people because again these are massive logistical um, logistical things. And one thing about one thing that can happen especially in the way that you're trained in in like an academic setting like college, right? One thing that can happen is you forget basic logistics that maybe you don't understand unless you've actually tried to get goods from point A to point B or make or get goods across a border, which I have, right? And so you you actually start to then understand all the, it is the eye pencil thing where you're starting to understand all the pieces at play that actually have to create one of these things. And it's not as simple as saying that they spontaneously talked about, um, uh, that they spontaneously decided together to just, you know, walk to the United States. That's not what's happening. And I think, and I don't think compassion means we, compassion means we, we ignore that. I don't think that's a compassionate position. The same way it's not compassionate to let your two-year-old burn their hands on the stove just to make them learn a lesson, right? If your two-year-old is grabbing, is going after the hot pan, you grab their wrist, not because you hate them, not because you want to hurt them, but because you want to prevent them from harm. And the people who are at the top of our society in government should be thinking like this. So the question is, why aren't they? And that's what, that's what we can do in the alternative space is actually highlight how these things work. And or rather, or rather, just just point out the obvious question, right? And you know, you have people like Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, people in Congress who are doing the good work on stuff like this. But it, but I think that drive, I think the immigrant story is so central to the progressive worldview because it's the guy outside Tammy Hall. Uh, what is it? 
Tamiami. I want to say Tamiami, but that's something Tammany. in Miami. Tammany, Tammany Hall. Yeah, Tammany Hall in um in in Gangs of New York, right? Where it's like, "Welcome to America. Here's your piece of bread. Make sure you vote for me for mayor." Of course, it follow the incentive. Follow the incentive structure that people have. And in a democracy, more votes means more power. So if you can bring in a people that 30%, 40%, 80%, 60% are going to vote for you, well that's good, right? Now, I need to follow that up with one thing, and I think you would agree with this as well, where it's just like the idea that the, that, that Hispanics are a single voting block is anathema, right? Yeah. And the progressives are trying so hard right now to pretend that that's the case, where it's just not. I mean, in my line of work where I'm interacting with a lot of blue-collar guys of all different stripes, Mexican, black, white, gringo, it doesn't matter. They're all kind of like, yeah, this is kind of stupid. You know, like, wh- like, can't they just follow the rules? I followed the rules to come here, right? That the people who the the Mexican, the his, the the Latin immigrants who come here, who came here by the rules, they don't love the people who who just cross over the border. And to pretend that a Mexican immigrant has any kind of fealty to somebody from El Salvador is thinking that only a upper middle class, you know, blue blood waspy person from the East Coast who's never interacted with anybody outside of their ethnic demographic could pot, could could envision, right? It's this idea that Cubans and Mexicans are the same, or Dominicans and or Dominicans and uh, Guatemalans are the same. No, like they're sh- they they have a common language, they have some common culture, but they don't. It's only in America where they all of a sudden get put into this one voting block called Hispanic. Well, look at Dominicans and and Haitians. They share the same blend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and they couldn't be any more different. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that was really driving me crazy today and doing some reading was, um, you know, I was all I've been thinking about lately is ideology and how ideology, how just how dangerous it is. And, you know, and then I thought and then I started reading this and it was uh, Sam Francis again. And like he had this part about ideology that was just says an ideology is independently premeditated because it is formulated prior to the actual investigation of reality through observation, experience and logical ordering. It thus becomes independent of reality and fixated on its doctrine. And you can even see that in like progressivism, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, conservatism. They start out with this thing where it's like they have this framework and they say, this is what we're all about. And none of it works in real life. Mm-hmm. None of it works in the real world. So it's like, what is conservatism? Um, uh, uh, what is it about? And it's about, oh, it's conserving the past. And it's, uh, well, and no, no one's trying to conserve the past because you're, yeah, you're trying to conserve the past. You'd be wanting to bring us back to a king, you know, answering to the Vatican. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, and liberalism, it, classic liberalism is, hey, Everybody gets to choose, you know, choose their path forward and uh, the the government protects your right. None of this stuff, none of this stuff works, you know, and, I, and bringing it back to like libertarianism, it's like I'm looking, I look at the libertarian ideology and I'm like, okay, so where does this, how does this work in the real world? I mean, even if 
somebody said, okay, we're going to build this libertarian society. Um, I I don't think that's going to work. I think that a libertarian society is if we get one, like a town, uh, you know, a county, it's going to be in spite of the libertarians. It's going mm-hmm. to be a culture has been built that produces libertarian values or a lib- or even borrows from the libertarian ideology. Not even borrows, but just manifests a libertarian ideology. And it just, I, I mean, I don't know how to... You try to argue the real world and you try to like um, talking about schooling, you know, obviously you want to homeschool. Mm -hmm. Obviously you you want to get rid of, get rid of the public schools, get rid of the government schools. Well, that's not going to happen. So what's the answer? Correct. And not everybody's going to homeschool. So what's the answer? Everybody should get a classical education. Great. I agree. Are we really going to, this was something that this was a, this was, I think this was an exchange we were both involved on, on Twitter today. Everybody deserves a classical education. Okay. I agree. I'm not, but also I don't believe that every single person needs a classical education or, or, or wants a classical education. It. Do you remember can, going to school? Can understand it. If you were an or intellectually curious, yeah, sorry to cut you off. If you were an intellectually curious person, do you remember how awful school was? Cause I do. Do you, I remember, I remember being sat down. I remember teachers pulling me aside after class. This was in a constitutional law class. Like four, it was undergrad, but still 400 level. You were using a real law book, blah, 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 blah. In a constitutional law class, I can remember having a conversation with the professor one day and him pulling me aside after class and saying, hey, LB, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed our back and forth, but we can't do that again. And we can't do that again because this class isn't at that level. I... For too long, I was blinded by these kinds of things because I was like, oh, okay, well, that's just kind of the way of things, right? Or I just, I can, I just remember, I can recall specific instances where I just watched people give presentations and being like, their heart isn't in this. They don't believe anything they're saying right now. And I go back to this point of, do you actually remember what school is? We get so enamored with this like platonic ideal of things we forget to look at the world, right? And we can look at this natural tension between Plato and Aristotle. Stefan Molyneux has a great way of putting it um, when he talks when he's talking about ideology versus philosophy. As it stands, by the way, Mises uses the world world uses the word worldview and human action to represent the same idea. So if you're if you're a Misesian, you can go and look at that. It's the same. It's the same. It's a different word describing the same idea. But Molyneux talks about how ideology is starting with your conclusion and working and reasoning your way backwards, whereas philosophy is the process of starting with an assumption and and reasoning from there. So I'm going to assume that the world works in this way. Can I, you know, prove or disprove that? As a skeptic, that's why I apply doubt to situations. That's why I say, why are we talking about open and closed borders? Like, yeah, and, and literally a border is just a line in the sand. I get that. But like, li- again, going back to my point of freedom needs a limit, lines are actually super important. Without lines, we wouldn't have literally anything. Like, you know, you wouldn't have a house without lines because your, li- because your house began as lines on a piece of paper, right? Your ho- your, the, the building blocks of your, of your building started off as like two by fours or, you know, pieces of steel that were cut to a certain length. Lines, limits, tolerances are required. They're basic parts of the world. It's just politics 
where people start to pretend that those things don't exist. Why? Because I, I would argue it benefits people in power to have like, you know, the underlings spinning around in circles over these issues, right? It's, it's, the, um, it's the, what's his face? Chomsky position, right? It's the, it's the idea of like narrow, narrow the field of allowable opinion and have people argue vociferously inside of that. Well, that's why we're trying to push ideas forward and why, you know, yourself and maybe me to a lesser extent have caught the ire of certain segments of the libertarian population because I've never been a very ideological. I've had my moments of ideology, but I've never really been an ideological person. I've always been somebody who's interested in exploring ideas and, and, and to wherever, wherever those ideas take me, you know, and sometimes I get upset that I've been woken from my libertarian slumber. But at the other, the other side of that, is there's no better journey for people who are willing to take it. Now the intellectual journey is different from the political one, but they have a lot of they have a lot of overlap. And those are the kinds of things we're doing. You got time for one more story? Um, yeah, let me. Can I read this? Because something you said really. Oh sure, me. go ahead. Um, so I had um, quoted Sam Francis earlier saying an ideology is independently premeditated because it is formulated prior to the actual investigation of reality through observation, experience, and logical ordering, it thus becomes independent in reality and fixated on its doctrine. What he goes on to say is, and you're talking about arguing backwards from, you know, what, okay, so it cannot be corrected or refuted by the intrusion of reality, and it therefore can never be verified nor falsified. An ideological system will tend to prove itself and prove itself as in quotes, and any argument or evidence against it will be incorporated into it as a confirmation of the ideology. And I just think that that's brilliant. And it explains everything, not only about libertarianism, it explains everything about progressivism, conservatism, um, classical liberalism, everything, everything. I mean, right. it's just, well, you're it's, never it going to, to be our wrong. humanity. And one, so like, uh, you know, we've talked about how like, really I'm interested in exploring like identity and the philosophical ramifications of that and how that interplays with skepticism, blah, blah, blah. But like, but part of the reason why I think I always come back to politics other than just, you know, an interest I've always kind of had is because in politics, we actually try to discover our identity because in many respects, you don't think about the just like you don't think about the shirt that you're grabbing to wear for today for the day or you know the color of what you're you know like oh is this blue or is this cerulean most people don't think about those things in their everyday life right but but most but in democracy you're told you get to choose your politics even if even if your political inclinations are actually biologically determined <laughs> right so it's like so so there's an element of that where this is actually an area and we're seeing the spillover effect with like the queer, the queerness and the critical theory as, as, as it relates. But this is actually like the, that, that. It's actually one of the areas that people signal something about themselves that is like you that, that they that they think is unique. Right. And, and so that's that's what makes it interesting, um, at least okay. to me. So one more story. And I frankly, you had another you had something else going on, but a little teaser. So I want to write a piece about like how they teach democracy in in school because like if you if you ever took a poli sci 101 course and you learn how that it's like literally you go it's pretty quick from like okay democracy is majority rule but the majority never votes okay moving on <laughs> right and so like so what they do is they actually train you to respond to the arguments 
and this is and you can raise your hand in class and say, "Hey, teacher, what about this?" And they're like, "Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I got to get through this part of the textbook because it's going to be on the test." Right? And and that is how you indoctrinate people on a massive scale. Is like, "Don't worry about the inconsistency, just worry about what's going to be on the test because, you know, schools and authority, this is how you push it on." So the last piece that we have. And thanks so much for stopping in. I think you're going to like this one. It says conservatives stop protesting at Applebee's. Stop that. Stop that right now. Around a year ago, I wrote a piece entitled. It's not cool to kick it. It's not cool to get kicked out where I discussed my begrudging mask wearing that my begrudging mask wearing came from a respect for the private property rights of businesses. Now we're going to go to this footnote because uh, truthfully, it's interesting to read it and see how my rhetoric shifted over 2021 because uh, it really, really did. But, but you know, I still, I don't think I was completely wrong with what I said then. I still like private, I still like private property rights, but there are very few occasions where I'll quote mask up without being directly asked. My position on this has definitely shifted after another year of unprecedented tyranny. And that's what we live under, by the way. We don't live under authoritarianism. We live under tyranny. Authoritarianism is just another one of these rational constructs we have that differentiates from libertarianism, right? That's why we're always using it is because of the political compass test. It says nothing about tyranny. Arguably, you could have a tyranny in any form. It's just maybe more common in authoritarian forms, might we say. I'm not protesting anything. I just won't be bothered to comply. I don't go to protests. And if you wear noise-canceling headphones when you shop for groceries and smile at people, I can report, even without a mask, it goes okay in a place like Chicago. Put another way, I'm not about to walk into a grocery store or restaurant looking for a fight. Millions of Americans feel angry that they must comply with unscientific rituals like donning a mask for 30 seconds as they walk into a chain restaurant. I stand with them, and that's why I want to offer a word of caution. We are mimetic creatures. This is to say we are beings that have the capacity to copy other beings like us. I feel for conservatives and other members of the natal American right whose faith has been shaken over the last two years and counting. These Americans were raised to believe the Constitution was like a fence, protecting the precious jewel of liberty. Their politicians, establishment Republicans, and nearly every Democrat were supposed to be standing guard. As the saying goes, the fox is in the hen house. As the natal American right searches for how to combat the tyranny, they look to their history books, written by progressives, and social media, run by progressives, and the answer they come up with? To adopt the behavior and tactics seen in popularized protests move, protest movements. This is not a good idea. To the untrained eye, it may appear that movements like BLM were spontaneous and the cry of the unheard. When you begin to understand how social control works, however, you realize that protest movements like BLM only work when the predominant media outlets elevate your profile and provide you fair coverage. How's that working out for the protesters against the vaccine mandates? Headlines give us a clue. From the New York Post, five anti-vax protesters arrested after storming New York City Burger King. From the New York Post again, six arrested after anti-vax protesters staged sit-in at NYC Cheesecake Factory. Anti-vaxxers storm Cheesecake Factory and Applebee's while diners ignore him. That's the Independent in the UK, which is a rag if you didn't know. And the last one from The Hill. Anti-vaccine protesters arrested in New York during organized sit-in at Cheesecake Factory, Applebee's. Lest, this post, lest you leave this post confused about how depraved the media is, 
Note that each headline refers to the protesters as being, quote, anti-vaccine. Within the first two paragraphs of each article, however, you learn no one was protesting the vaccine. They were all protesting the mandate to show your papers, to show that you have a vaccine card. Don't believe me? Here are the quotes. Five people arrested. This is from each of the pieces in order. Five people were arrested after a group of protesters stormed a Burger King in New York on Monday night to protest the city's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Six people have been arrested after a group of anti-vax protesters staged a sit-in. Uh, they refused to show proof of vaccination in defiance of New York City requirements. The so-called Battle of Applebee's has been fought after a group of anti-vaxxers attempted to storm several restaurants in a shopping mall in Queens, New York. Do you hear, like, I, I, I add that emphasis for obvious reasons. They were voicing their disapproval at the state's new COVID vaccine mandate for indoor dining and other activities. And then the last one, six men at a cheesecake factory and four people at an Applebee's in a mall in Queens were arrested during a sit-in to protest against indoor dining coronavirus vaccine mandates. So why weren't they at a government building? In no small part, this is because most left-wing progressives rely on disrupting unassuming people in cities, stores, and restaurants to get their point across. No justice, no peace, after all, is what they say. These Americans, who are rightfully upset, have watched protesters be handled with kid gloves as they smashed buildings and set them on fire. They have been conditioned to think protesting, sit-ins, is how they are supposed to voice their beliefs, but they're doing it wrong. I don't personally think protesting and activism are how to affect change against the tyrannical apartheid state. However, I do still believe you can make your voice heard. If you are a conservative, libertarian, disaffected liberal, or another portion of this natal American right I've made allusions to, you must understand that the powerful, like massive protests that call for abstractions like change or less racism what they despise are protests that call attention to their tyrannical overreach. We live in a time where the word patriot, in many circles, is met with severe distrust. In fact, one Twitter account I follow called Patriot Takes, where they, quote, research, monitor, and expose the far-right corners of the web to identify right-wing disinformation and dismantle extremist talking points. That's what Patriot Takes is in 2022. Identifying and identifying the far-right and dismantling their, their rhetoric. So I guess in 2022, we can say it is far right to love your country. It is far right to be, it is li like literally, Mark, we've gone from Mark Twain who says a patriot is somebody who loves his country all of the time and his government when it deserves it to this, this account Patriot Takes, which by the way is in major sources like The Hill. So they've got some pretty serious funding behind them. Right, like the Hill piece in particular that I that I that I show here has the tweet that I embed at the bottom of this. Patriot takes is considered a far right watch group. That's this this is the America we're in. We're not in the America where we get to have a an academic discussion about the proper level of immigration. We're not in the America where we're all kind of safely just having these these arguments for ourselves because really we live in the best country on the earth. Uh, and you know, it's, we're really, really rich here and everything goes pretty well for the most part. We don't, that's not the America we live in anymore. And this is why, this is why I wrote the post-libertarian moment to find. This is why I talk about the fact that the libertarian prescription to the post-war order is out of date and why we need better ways of looking at things and better words to, to describe 
the political situation that we find ourselves in. And also, by the way, why we're not going to mince words when it comes to Marxism. We're not going to mince, like the idea of mincing words. Read Mises. Mises spends his, the entirety of human action dismantling the Marxist position, and we're still dealing with it in 2022. Yeah, they don't call themselves Marxist, but it's the same thing. It's the specter of Marx. It's the critical theorists. It's the, it's the critical race theorists. It's the queer theorists. All of them rely on the same basic conflict theory of the world where there are two groups in society that are necessarily at odds and they can never come to any kind of, conclu- any kind of resolution. Certainly no kind of peaceful resolution because they don't want peace because peace is an orderly position. Yeah, I think that trying to talk to the right and especially trying to come up with solutions for them is tedious because like everyone else in this, um, you know, in this country, in this culture, they've been convinced that the only way to elicit change politically is in Washington, D.C., when literally they're their answer is local, especially if they're from a smaller town. They're not in a blue section. I mean, I've been telling people just if you're in a blue in, in a blue place and you have family there and you're trying to convince them to leave and you want to leave. I mean, culture is really important to me. Family is really important to me. But you got to take care of yourself. And if they're just not willing to leave, you got to get out and everything. And it was like when um, Dave Smith was um, debating Nick Fuentes. He gave Nick Fuentes the answer. He said, look, if you want this ethno state, um, Fuentes ethno state, um, that. <laughs> Hang on. Can we point out the irony of this position, by <laughs> yeah, the way? Yeah, Just it, like the idea of good. somebody whose last name is Fuentes is talking about like a, is talking about some kind of an ethno state. Like, yeah. are right. we are we are you and I invited? I don't I don't think so. I don't think they oh. like me there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I just I was just looking at our last names and thinking, okay, maybe maybe I don't know. It, yeah, right. And we're both we're just both a couple yeah. Hispanics here talking. You know what I mean? Like it's. <laughs> but the um, you know, he gave him the answer. Go local. Get, get a, a local area. Do, do do that. And he's at the point where he just wants the reins of power so that he can punish his enemies and. I have no problems with that, but it's a lot easier to do locally. And you really don't even have to punish them. You just have to set it up so that they don't want to be there anymore. You know, and yeah, well, and I might be speaking a little bit from ignorance, but like there's a difference between punishing your enemies and punishing everybody. Yeah. Right. And and I don't know enough about a Fuentes position or the Groiper position. I I really don't. Um, But I don't know enough of the position, but like it's sometimes the rhetoric that I do come across smacks smacks me in the face with that. It's like, I just want to punish somebody. And it's the yeah. same thing. It's by the way, it's just a mirror that we see in popular left wing movements as well. Right. There's, you know, there's like a certain, there's a certain archetype of, of a black American who's like, good. I don't want white people. I want white people to be scared. I want white people to be uh, uncomfortable. I don't want them to feel safe in their homes, Bob, all these different things. And I, I think intellectually speaking, you can grapple with that emotional drive um, and you can, but you have to move beyond it. And I would say the same thing there. Like there's, there's a fine line in this, in this formulation that 
rights or wrong, just what is justice? Justice is paying what you owe and not paying what you don't owe. There's a there's a fine line between righting a wrong and overturning the apple cart. Yeah. And that's and that is a dangerous line to walk, and it's one of the reasons you know it's 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 one of the reasons why why I'm trying to have conversations with people and try to and try to elucidate that because well well because we have history to look at right and so we're kind of in this we've kind of got this really good thing going called the West and yeah it's not doing very well right now but that doesn't mean it's I don't think hope is lost I think the Constitution is dead I don't think that means hope is lost for freedom right if you the more people recognize something like that, the more they realize their tactics have to change. Your idea, your, what you believe doesn't have to change. Your tactics do. And I don't think, and I think that starts, by the way, with like not becoming a target for people to clamp down on. Like these people who are protesting in Applebee's or people who are calling for a civil war or anything like that. Or Fed posting or on fe- Twitter and things like that. Yeah. By the way, as it stands, as soon as you accept the idea that war doesn't have to be kinetic in the 21st century, which it doesn't, as soon as you understand that we are in an information war, you start to realize that it's already started, man. It already started yeah, yeah. a while ago. Yeah. And we're in the midst of it right now. And actually having conversations like these, like this are the battles that are being waged. And that's why you have to choose your words so carefully. Yeah. And guns aren't going to settle this. Guns will, unfortunately, you know, I respect somebody like Charles Haywood a lot of the Worthy House podcast. And I think he's so right on a lot of his prescription, um, a lot of his analysis. Um, but he, he actually thinks that this is going to get violent. And as soon as it gets violent, it's like, I mean, you're just, you're going to have a change in management. You're not going to have a change in ideology. You're not going to have, um, it's just, it's not going to look good. Mm-hmm. It's not going to it's not going to work out the way people think it's going to work out. And it is an information war and people say, well, you know, well what do you you're just going to podcast and everything? It's like, well, I mean, I think podcasts actually do change a lot of people's minds and change a lot of people's um thoughts. I've had people, I remember I was in New York when I was in New York for the Scott Horton debate and a guy came up to me and said to me, um Thanks to you, I'm leaving the city and I'm you know, getting a farm and everything. I'm like, okay, I changed someone's life for the better. Yeah. I, I, that's more than most of the people who you know want to criticize me for whatever uh, are doing. And I, yeah, you know, but I also think that there's still room for politics locally. Um, I, national politics was. You know, I, I've talked to somebody that we both know and respect about national politics and what it would take to change national politics. And it it's going to take a while and it's going to take some serious planning. It's going to take a lot of strategy in order to do it. And it starts at the state level. Um, but I mean, honestly, you know, you talk about an information war and that's where we are. And Anyone who is talking, thinking about violence or thinking about, I mean, you're just a thought, thought criminals are in trouble at this point. I mean, look, I mean, it's you know, also gotten someone, violent. Yeah. In yeah. plenty of places, and, violence has, violence sure. has abounded, right? So yeah, you can, and the you left can, can get, and the left can get away with it because they're in power. If, if the, if the people committing violence are on the left side, they can get away with it because they're, they're in power. Of course, they don't go into right areas and do this. You know, they're not going into small towns like the town I live in and, and doing this because they'll get mowed down, mm-hmm. but they know where to go 
And if the right meets those people in those places, it's automatically the right's fault because the right's just being reactionary to these, you know, wholesome, you know, people who care about people. And yeah, yeah, I mean, we're all you have to do is look at the way the people from January 6th, the people who the guy who like had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Yeah, that guy who has like he's at home with an ankle monitor now. And he was basically told by press to pose that way. I want to take a picture of you. Can you sit down there and, you know, and everything it's like, okay, well, you know, I mean, you're being set up. Do not buy into this. I mean, I don't, I am very distrustful now of people who, if you want to have a conversation, that's fine. If you want to plan something, you know, in meet space in real life and you want to get together and everything and say, all right, let's let's get together and talk about this. Very distrustful. Very I'm, you know, I'm assuming it's gotten to the point of this. If someone tells me, you know, the FBI showed up at my house once or the FBI came or the police came and they investigated me. I assume they're an informant. Yeah, that they're working for the other side. I, I, I don't think that that's. I think that that's, that's a fair assumption now. That if anyone has ever been investigated, had a phone call, had a visit from the feds, that they may be working for the feds. I mean, I just don't trust anyone anymore because I trust some people that I know that I've known for years, and still there's a little bit of okay, well. If you start talking about violence, we're going to, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to run away like, like my ass is on fire and the closest water is three miles away. That's how fast I'm running. Yeah. And just well, keep because the, the honorable man doesn't there. seek violence. Yeah. Right. Like, like the honorable man doesn't seek violence. He doesn't. Right. Like he might seek combat of one form or another. Right. He might seek sport. If we go, let's go back, let's go back to, let's go back to uh, uh, the King Arthur, King Arthur's knights, right? The knights weren't riding around Can- um, Camelot in England, just lancing the average citizen. It was only when another knight accosted them in the street or wouldn't let them pass that they engaged in any sort of violence. That doesn't mean they weren't trained. That doesn't mean they weren't prepared to defend themselves and defend their land and, the, you know, their honor, as the case may be. But that, but it does mean that when, yeah, you start getting, and you know, let's let's put this in the let's put this in the most charitable of light before we get out of here for tonight. Again, going back to my point of these people who are storming app, you know, I, I even look at me, I'm using the words. Look at these people who are trying to like copy the civil rights movement in the 1960s. In a place close to me, Arlington Heights, Illinois, there were people on a street corner holding up signs saying, "We don't support segregation. Stop the ban. Stop the passports." Those people have the right impulse, but they're, they're putting it in the wrong direction. What does work are the direct, is the direct action, is, going to, is making sure that your local, your local school board knows that there are people out there who are, who are against this, is finding the people who are going to run for school board. Be, and using the, and you, that's actually using the system to your advantage. I would argue not engaging in the activist mindset, in the activist mentality, because that, the activism that we've seen in America is is propped up by the press and we've already they've already sent out the signals right like the repu- why why the far right is looking to take over your school board 
I think there, there was a, that wasn't the headline, but there was a headline similar to that that Politico put out. So they're about to start they're about to start demagoguing moms and dads for wanting their kids to have a good education. That we already saw that in the Virginia election. So we have to be smarter and we have to be better. And we don't. And by the way, we don't need the violence and we don't need the calls for violence. And that's and that's that's where I'll that I think that's where we can leave it for today. Um, sure. I appreciate you popping by, popping in, Pete. It was a lot of fun to Thank bounce you. these ideas off you. Hopefully you like that androgyny piece because I'm quite proud of it. Um, you want to let people cool. know where they can find you? Um, the Pete Kenyatta show. I almost said the free man beyond the wall podcast, you know, because, you know, four and a half years. Yeah. Must muscle memory. Yeah. Um, the, the Pete Kenyatta show. And um, I'm no longer at that, that Institute, but I do own post libertarian Institute.com. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I forget who was, I think I forget who, I think it was Steppy who who like said, "Hey, this is available." I'm like, oh, "I'm just going to go buy that." Yeah. I was in a restaurant and I bought it and <laughs> sitting there in a restaurant. There's something um, fun and, about buying domain names like that. Yeah, um, and um, my sub stack by any means necessary, and uh, that that's a lot of fun. I try I try to have a lot of fun with that where I can. That's where all my that's where I try to leave my hyperbole, leave it on that, and um, try to make a little bit of sense on Twitter. Very cool. Well, guys, if you don't know who I am, I am uh, I am the mind behind the Been Awake Project for better sense making. You can find me on all social media at the LB Muniz. Do me a favor, follow, subscribe, and we'll see you next time. If you like what you heard today. Go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is Albi Muniz, and I am not one with the woke. Mm, we're off. Cool, man. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I um, just felt like talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, I don't mind doing the solo thing, but it's always fun when somebody can come in and like, bounce ideas around and you know it's it just makes for a little bit easier of a conversation so i think i don't uh, i don't think i tried to turn like purposely wanted to do like a borders section there but uh, carlos got under my skin a little bit this morning (laughs) (laughs) he just came in with the non sequitur it was just like okay but that's not even what this is about but you know sure why not yeah Yeah, i always think of those things in terms of like oh who's had their coffee and who hasn't <laughs> I get accused of that all the time. Stacy's always like, um, she's like, "You've had your coffee. Relax. Don't talk to me yet." <laughs> oh, because she hasn't yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She always wakes up after me, so I wake up early, and I, I, I like do all my creative stuff in the morning. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and so she wakes up later, and it's like, and I'm like already excited because I've found something and everything. She's like. <laughs>